Good morning. So thankful for the musicians. Wow, so good just to worship the Lord, be ushered in to God's presence through song. Such a blessing. So grateful for the production team, too, that have just took us through this uh, pandemic. And it's not over, as we know, but they've just done such a great job every single week. Um, making it so that people can be at home this morning uh, and just enjoy the service. But also they, they run sound and lights and details here. Sarah has been just kind of overseeing some of that. And Carlos has just been killing it every week, doing all the technology. Um, Joe doing sound back there. Shane doing the camera. I could just keep naming people. Justin's been here like every week pretty much. I think he missed a week or two or something. But just making sure everybody feels comfortable on Nate downstairs, you know, Catherine, I think, now is doing the online management uh, because Allie um, is out of commission for a little bit because she just had a baby. Uh, yeah. Little Levi George. <laughs> Cute. We're excited for uh, Emery, Levi's older sister. Pretty exciting for the Lasan family. But I'm just so grateful for the staff, the council, my elders have just been stellar, you know, through the pandemic, just giving me good wisdom and support and prayer. Um, again, my staff has just been beautiful. Roger and Jackie just keeping this place spick and span and just making it beautiful every, every week. Um, and then there's my wife. Yeah, she plays a role. You have no idea. <laughs> this whole thing would fall apart without her. Now, she holds me up. Um, and she has been such a, a blessing behind the scenes, uh, just encouraging and counseling me and being just an awesome wife. We've been married 30 years. Um, yeah, that's a long time. <laughs> It's a long time. It's more than half of my life, but it's been it's been good. It's been good. You know, sometimes people are get cynical, like, oh, you, you know, uh, marriages don't last. Well, they don't. Fifty percent in the church and outside the church fall apart, divorce, um, and then some just stay together, but they're not happy. I think some in the the younger generation just get cynical. Wow, can. Are there good marriage? Is it possible to have a good marriage? You know, is it possible to be in love like for the rest of your life? Absolutely. Um, so far, so good. It's 30 years. I mean, we still have like another 30 or 40 or 50 left, right? So I don't know. We, we haven't finished yet. Talk to us in 30 years. But at this point, it's good. And Roger and Jack, you guys have been married for 49 years. 49 years? Wow, 49 years, and Roger will have his 100th birthday this year. <laughs> 49 years, wow. And these guys are like uh, the epitome of joy. Uh, they're just so fun to be around. I love Roger and Jackie. Anyways, I could keep going. I'm just rambling. I'm just procrastinating because I don't want to preach the word. No, I'm just kidding. I love <laughs> preaching the word. This is, uh, this is my joy. To this thing is funky. It's falling apart. Okay, yeah, it's broken. It's fine. It's good. It's good. I'm good. It's good. It's fine. Just do it a different way. All right. I was wondering why it kept on sliding down. All right, so let's get into the word. So today, um, we are continuing our Ephesians series, and we're in chapter 5. We're just going to look at a couple verses. I'm going to read the verses uh, to kick us off. If you're brand new with us, Ephesians is a New Testament epistle or letter that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote 
to the Ephesian Christians. Um, Ephesus was not uh, really a Jewish city or a Christian city uh, by any means. It was a very uh, kind of corrupt and crazy, sinful city, but a church was birthed there, and the letter to the Ephesians was, um, you know, Paul's instructions to them and, and, and Paul's words of encouragement. But of course, 2,000 years later, still very relevant to us, and these verses in particular should minister. All right, you guys ready? Let's get into it. It says this, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. So when it says to, to look carefully how you walk, it is referring to our, just our lifestyle. It's the way we choose to live. It's what we do with the time, the talent, the money, the energy, the opportunities that we've been given. It is urging us to, to really use our heads, to, to think through every aspect of our lives and make sure that we're doing life the way God wants us to be doing it. Paul says also in this, uh, these verses, walk wise, not as unwise. Wisdom is, is living from a divine perspective, living from the point of view of the word of God. It's living with uh, eternity in view, living how God wants us to live. Wisdom is spiritual efficiency. It isn't just possessing insight. I think sometimes the world has that idea, right, of wisdom, this old man who's, you know, full of, you know, all these theories and knowledge. And it's, it's not a static thing. It's how we live. The wise person lives a certain way, and he maximizes the best things. And then Paul says this phrase, make the best of the time. The New International Version that many of us still use, but many of us started our walk with Jesus using that version uh, puts it this way. That this is the one I've memorized through the years. Make the most of every opportunity. Make the most of every opportunity. Each day, listen, is, a, is an opportunity. This day is an opportunity to serve God, to seek God. Every morning is an opportunity to come close to God. Each day we go to work is an opportunity to display love. Every paycheck we receive is an opportunity to be generous. Those evening hours after work, you know, when we get home, maybe we have two or three or four hours in the evening. It's an opportunity to do something good, to invest in maybe the family, to invest in the kids, to spend some time with God, to get into the word, to reach out to a brother or sister in Christ. The commute to work, maybe it's a 20-minute, 30-minute uh, train ride, bus ride, car ride, or whatever, is an opportunity to maybe pray, talk to the Lord, or listen to the Word of God on, on CD or whatever. When someone asks you a question about your faith, that's an opportunity to make Christ known. Every temptation is an opportunity to show your love for God. James 1.12. Every trial is an opportunity to produce character. James 1, Romans 5, 1 Peter 1, kind of teach that. The local church often spreads a banquet. We certainly do. Well, not so much during the pandemic, but usually we spread a banquet of opportunities to grow spiritually, to serve the church, to display love to the city. Opportunities abound if we have breath in our lungs. Can someone say amen to that? Take a deep breath. 
We have breath in our lungs today. It's not over. Well, the scriptures say that our lives are no longer our own, that we've been bought with a price, right? The cross is right next to me. That's a reminder that we've been bought with a price. The precious blood of Christ was shed for us that we might become his people, his possession. But listen, this verse means that 100% of our money is God's. Not 10%. It's all his. That means that seven days a week are God's. Not just Sundays. Every day, all day is God's. Not just the 45-minute block we have in the morning where we pray and do our devotions. It's all God's. I like to do this kind of nerdy stuff sometimes, just math things. But I was uh, just, you know, I've done this many times, but, you know, I've kind of thought about, okay, we're awake for maybe 16 hours a day. Maybe some of you, it's less, maybe more, whatever. Depends on how much you sleep. But average, 16 hours a day. That leaves 112 hours a week. What do we do with those hours? Well, we have jobs, family responsibilities, and again, this is different for different ones because some of you work 57, 60 hours a week. Some of you work, you know, 27 to 31 hours a week. Some of you have three kids, four kids. Some of you have no kids or you're empty nesters, so you have more free time or you're single. But the question is, what do we do with those other hours? Maybe it's 60 hours a week. How much of our time is spent in prayer, in the Word, reading spiritual books, just gazing in worship on God, discipling other people, fellowship, godly fellowship? Or do we waste and squander the precious gift of time that we have been given? That's a question for all of us to think about. So the message in these verses is, is simple. Orient your lifestyle in such a way that it's around the pursuit of God and his purposes. Our lifestyles, the way we walk, our walk with God, should be evidence of the seriousness of our devotion to Jesus. And I think the Lord teaches us, he teaches us how to walk the way he walked when he was on the earth. And, and we, we begin to learn to, to weave prayer and the word into the pauses and more mindless activities of our day, right? Driving in the car is an opportunity to draw close to God. The 20-minute time it takes to fold the laundry could be a perfect time to intercede for our grandmother or our sibling. Prepping food in the kitchen. Maybe you're there alone in the kitchen just chopping vegetables. Perfect opportunity to listen to a sermon. Or put on some worship music and just let your spirit soar. Raking the yard for the afternoon doesn't have to be a thing that we're just grumpy and cranky about and just wanting to get through it. It can be a great opportunity to just put some headphones on and listen to a great message or listen to the word of God or just quietly commune with the God. I could keep on going. How about our time in the shower? On the toilet taking the dog out. Now, you can call me crazy, but I think these are opportunities to glorify God. They're opportunities to connect with God. They're little quiet pauses and moments during our day when we need to just like wake up and realize, oh, this is a gift right now. I have five minutes. Well, to some, this you know, may sound uh, a little extreme. I love that Pastor Scott. He's a, he's a little nuts. It's a little excessive. This doesn't seem normal to be that way. But, you know, I don't care about the opinions of people and what they think 
is normal for a Christian. You know what I care about? What is normal to the Apostle Paul or to Elijah or to the early apostles, you know, James and John? What would they consider normal for a walk with God in 2020? Or how about Jesus? What does he consider normal? I mean, think about this. Is it not how we're going to live for eternity? Think about that. I mean, are, are we going to be in, in glory and eternity in the new city? And it, will there ever be two or three hours that we just kind of unplug from Jesus? And just look at some screen somewhere? And we're not even thinking about him or we're lost in some book or novel or whatever, and God is like the furthest thing from our mind? Will we tune God out for even a minute in eternity? No, we won't. Because it will be normal to stay our minds on the beautiful person of God in an unceasing way. And listen, this extreme urgency is precisely what the Bible encourages in many different places. I mean, we're called to unbroken fellowship with God, unceasing prayer, right? First Thessalonians 5. And meditation on the word of God, day and night, Psalm 1. We're called to abide in him, right? John 15, to abide, to cling, to stay to walk with him, to fix our thoughts on him, Hebrews 12, or to set our mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, Colossians 3. I mean, check this, this portion out right here. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul instructs this extreme urgency. Listen to this. The appointed time, speaking of, you know, this time that, God has given us to live on the earth in the body, this kind of short little span, 70, 80 years or whatever. The appointed time for our lives in the body has grown very short. I was thinking about that this morning, that the rest of my life is shorter today than it was yesterday. I know that's deep, right? Back to the verse. From now on, let those who have wives, sorry, Tiff, live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. What? For the present form of this world is passing away. It's a strange portion of scripture, isn't it? He's essentially telling us to hold everything loosely. Don't get attached. The world in its present form is passing away. We are pilgrims. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is not our home. Just to illustrate this, I think the concept of making the most of our time is understood, I think, clearly when we consider the way Olympic athletes train. They know that the time to train is limited. It may be a four-year window. Every aspect of lifestyle is considered. They're careful not to sleep too much or too little, right, because it can affect the performance of their training. They're careful how they eat. Eating the wrong foods can make them sluggish. The athlete may be interested in movies and travel and shopping and video games and Instagram and reading novels and a whole bunch of other things. But all of these are either cut out completely or reduced to a minimum. Maybe the athlete is very social and loves hanging out with friends. This too is brought into moderation. Once the athlete creates the optimum schedule, right, to distribute their time, and uh, wisdom is then applied to the time that is set out, you know, kind of carved out for training. Maybe it's 10 hours a day that they're planning to train. And so the next question for 
for the athlete is this, you know, how can I best utilize those 10 hours? Because those 10 hours could easily be spent unwisely. The athlete could, you know, show up and not give their all. I think about Rocky at one point, usually he trained hard, but Rocky in one of the movies was discouraged. I think he was having, you know, romance problems or whatever with Adrian and just, you know, he's all discouraged and he's coming into the gym and is, he's just all weak and, and sad and Mickey, his trainer, just scolded him. So it's not about just showing up. It's about giving your all. So the athlete has to consider how to stay motivated. Wisdom about doing things the best way. Wisdom is about doing things the best way. So the location of where the trainer training is, the equipment that he's using, obviously the trainer himself is a consideration. We understand all of this. The point is this. Athletes understand that in order to compete, they must make the best use of the limited time they have. Paul says almost this identical thing in 1 Corinthians 9, when he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? And then listen to what he says. So run that you may obtain it. I think the NIV says run in such a way that you may obtain the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, right? I mean, that was what they did 2,000 years ago in the Olympic Games, but, you know, today it's gold medals and silver medals and all that. But he says, but we, an imperishable. He's saying, we exercise self-control in all things, and we're running in such a way as to win the prize. But the prize is not just a gold medal. The prize is eternal riches, treasure that is stored up in heaven. Wow. Now, in one part of this verse, Paul says to make the most of our time, make the best use of the time. The time refers to the time we've been given in the body. We know scripture says life is a mist, right? James 5, we appear for a little while and then we vanish. People often say things like time flies. Where did the time go? We cannot pause time. It just keeps moving, right? Each, each person, each of us is racing toward our expiration date when these earthly bodies are separated from our spirits. Psalm 90 says the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. And then the psalmist Moses actually said this, teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to just think about how few days we have left on the earth so that we would get a heart, a, a mindset of just making the most of what is left. That's exactly what he's saying. Now, I've, I don't know when I started doing this, but uh, at different points, I mean, I feel like I probably do this every two or three months. I take this a little bit, maybe literal, and, and number my days. Now, I don't know when I'm going to die, so I can't do the math exactly. But just visually, this is, this is what I do. I'll, in my notebook, I'll put a row of 10 X's. Just right across. And you can do this. I encourage you to do this. Put it in, in your Bible, maybe. But 10 X's across. That represents the first 10 years of my life. Crazy years. And then another row under that of another 10 X's. That's the next 20 years of my life. And then another row of X's. 10 coming to 30, and then another to 40, and then another row of X's, 10 X's to 50. And then when I get to the, the sixth row, I only put three X's because I'm 53 years old at this point. And then I continue down the row and, and fill in that row, not with X's, but with O's. O's are, I guess, potential years that I might have. And so the, the seven would push me to 60. And then under that, I put a row of 10 O's, which would bring me to 70. And then I put another row of 10 O's, which puts me to 80. And then I usually throw in an additional row of 10 O's that would put me to 90. 
because who knows, I could live to 90. I'm kind of shooting for that. That would be awesome. But when you look at the visual, and I'm looking at it right here on my iPad, it awakens something inside of you. I mean, what I'm looking at, I'm seeing that definitely more than half of my life is behind me. It's over. And I am over the hill, as they say. I'm coming down the slope on the other side, heading toward glory. I don't know how long, I, unless I'm going to live to be 107, it's, it's, it's more than half over. But it's sobering to look at how few O's, potential years, are left. Number your days. Isaiah 40 says, all flesh is as grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. This present life is fading. Our bodies are wasting away. We're losing our energy, our hair, our mobility, our teeth, our memory. The world and all of its desires is passing away. And then what? We die once, right? We die once and then the judgment. We stand before God. It is so easy to get wrapped up in earthly affairs and lose sight of this massive theme of the brevity of life and the certainty of death and the judgment to follow. Once that day comes when we see his face, we will see clearly the foolishness of our wasted time, our squandered resources, our people-pleasing actions, our moments of stupidity and drinking from sinful waters, and everything we did outside the perfect will of God. So the apostle is urging us here, and I'm urging you this morning to uh, make the best use of this gift of time that you have while we still have breath. All right, moving on. Next, Paul says, make the most of the time because the days are evil. Because the days are evil. Now, here's, here's Paul. He's going to give us the motivation. Because, yeah, okay, make the most of every opportunity, okay? Yeah, be wise. All right, why, why though, right? He, he's going to give us the why in this verse. Pay attention. Let this stir you and motivate you. The times we live in the body are spiritually dangerous days. The time between, uh, you know, the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Christ, you know, it's, in Scripture it's kind of called the latter days, the last days. That's the time we live in. That's our time. It's a time when the whole world lies under the control of the evil one, right? First John 5. The systems of the world are controlled by invisible forces. And it's predicted to get worse and worse, not better and better. Don't let anyone deceive you. Read your Bible. There will be seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Men will be lovers of themselves, the Bible says. They, there's even this idea in the book of Revelation that Satan comes down with great wrath because he knows he has but a short time. The word of God warns that there will be a falling away a great apostasy. Many will depart from the faith. False prophets and teachers will arise. The love of most will grow cold. The whole world will turn against the Christians. Many will be martyred. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. I'm going to, because maybe some of you don't believe me, I'm just going to give you the red letters, Jesus' own words from Matthew 24. When asked about these end times, he says this, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come into my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed, for this must take place. The end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then 
many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, because there will just be this permissive spirit in the land that just disregards the commands of God, the love of most or many will grow cold. And we are already tasting that in our generation. It's happening before our eyes. So here's what these verses are saying. Satan is making the most of every opportunity that he has to trip us up, to knock us off the path. And here's my question. Shall we be casual when he is consumed with intensity? I mean, do athletes train casually and sloppily when they're competing against their opponent who is training rigorously? That would be foolish. It's as if he's saying we cannot afford to be nominal and wasteful or we will be carried away by evil. We can't have one foot devoted and the other foot in the mouth of a hungry lion. We can't walk around with no armor in a war zone and just think we're going to be fine. It, you know, if, if we love the things of the world, we're eventually going to be overcome by the world. It simply doesn't work. A house built on the sand of disobedience will eventually fall when the winds and waves crash against it. Now, if we can just get sober for a moment, the fact is that many Christians are getting crushed in this generation and swept away by evil. They're buying into the deceptions of the age and falling into the snares and the schemes of Satan. It was predicted. Many who claim to be Christian seem to be unequipped to handle what's going on. Over time, they're undermining certain doctrines. I mean, I, I've seen it all in my 31 years, almost like 25 years of ministering. People claim faith today, but they use pornography. They just lie. They just lie. Blatantly. They cheat. They steal. I mean, some deny Orthodox Christian doctrines. It's like, I don't even know what they believe. It's a, it's a different gospel. It's a different Bible. I, I've been in churches that, that went to do communion and talked about the atonement, and they, they didn't talk about the atonement. They literally uh, obliterated the doctrine of the atonement. Some practice or condone fornication. And of course, the practice of homosexuality is now acceptable by many who claim to be Christian. Christians divorce their wives without biblical grounds. Some deny the resurrection. I mean, remember being doing campus ministry at Northeastern University years ago, and you know, all the campus ministers are there, you know, with their different tables on activity day and setting up, and I'm, you know, kind of talking, chatting, chatting it up with the the, the girl next to me who's, you know, has her little ministry there. And Easter was coming soon. And, and we were talking about that. I was like talking about Easter. And, and, and it just came out that she didn't even believe in the resurrection. I did not handle that well in the moment. And actually gotten, I almost got kicked off campus for the things that I said to her. But, you know, Christians have no sense of the sinfulness of sin. There's no repentance. There's a blatant love of money, love of material things. Many are abusing alcohol and drugs and think that it's fine. They promote abortion. Many Christians don't believe in judgment, really. That's, I don't, they don't see judgment or hell. They're not even sure if there is a hell, really. Their prayer lives are empty. They're proud. They resist the spirit. They don't fear God. They don't tremble at the word of God. Many are being carried away, just like Eve was deceived by the serpent. So many are being led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Many claim to be Christian, but they're just like the world. 
sometimes worse. But, you know, they're dressed up in a cheap Christian costume, like wolves in sheep's clothing. The book of Titus describes them this way. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works, their actions. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit. Now listen, to live nominal, to live in these unholy ways that I'm talking about, and and just think, well, you know, I'm saved. I'm saved, you know, Jesus will never leave me. Because that's what the Bible teaches. This is a gross presumption and oversimplification of Bible promises. And it may be evidence that we're fooling ourselves and that we're actually not Christians at all. But listen, even if it is true that we are genuinely saved and the doctrine of once saved, always saved is true, which I do lean toward believing, and we cannot lose our salvation, we would have to at least agree that it is still possible to be carried away by evil into unfruitful living. And we can be swept into bondage and deception that brings shame to the cause of Christ. I mean, some have heard even just in recent days the terrible sins of Ravi Zacharias or this uh, famous pastor in New York City brings shame to the name and the movement of Jesus. But we can fall under the discipline of God and end up as wood, hay, and stubble on the day of judgment. 1 Corinthians 3. Now, I know we don't tend to, you know, we don't think about invisible realms in the West, you know, in, in America, in, 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 in Europe. Uh, uh, you know, we're very pragmatic. It's what we can see and touch. But there, there is, a, a, I just want, want to say this strong. There are demonic forces at work. Even as we speak, they may be in this very room. They may be floating around the building. They may be walking or moving or flying or whatever they do. We can't see them down Broad Street. They're at work in human affairs. They tempt, they lie. Demons possess people and torment people. Demons war with angels. They scheme. Satan blinds the eyes of unbelievers and takes them captive to do his will. These unseen forces of darkness stir division and violence in our country. They inspire the most wicked things happening on the planet. They prowl, hunt, as roaring lions seeking to devour. They rage with evil passion to drag us away from the Lord. We need to be awake to the spiritual war. You know, we may be lighthearted people, just kind of casual people. And it's okay to be lighthearted and fun-loving and all that, but listen, inside, we need to be sober about these things because Satan's not lighthearted at all. He has the face of war. And you can read about that in Ephesians 6 that we'll get to in a few weeks, but I want to kind of keep moving The delusion, listen, is that we can be unprepared, but somehow we'll make it through the evil day. Just take that in. That we can squander our time and neglect to put on the armor of God, but somehow magically, magically, we will be mighty warriors on the day of evil. And I'm saying the day of evil because that's what Paul says in Ephesians 6 that I didn't read, but he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. So that's the evil day that I'm speaking of, that there are these times, maybe not a day, days, moments, seasons, that come to us. Every day is not the same, where Satan comes and tries to sweep us away. Wow. Why do we think we would be different than King David who fell into sin with Bathsheba or Solomon? Why do we think we're different than Saul in the Bible or Samson or Ravi Zacharias for that matter? Or about this, you know, the pastor, the Hillsong pastor in New York City who fell into gross adultery 
I mean, these should be to us cautionary tales. And so many others I could mention have fallen and fallen hard. I have watched so many people in the last 31 years. Friends. People that I went to Bible school with. I mean, I think of one kid that just, you know, went back into drugs, overdosed, and died. I mean, this happened. One of the preachers, I remember, at Times Square Church in the upper room, like on fire for God, leading people to the Lord all the time, went back into drugs and overdosed and died. What makes, we, what makes us think we won't fall away? How many cautionary tales do we need before we actually take caution and fear God? The evil day is different for each of us. The Bible says we're not unaware of his schemes, right? Satan isn't just some crazy, you know, thing foaming at the mouth and unintelligent. He is a lot smarter than us. I mean, he's a fallen angel. These are fallen angels that have superior skill and knowledge, and they are scheming against us. They have tailor-fit schemes to take us out. By the way, side note, you should read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis because it's an amazing, imaginative understanding of how Satan very well could be deceiving Christians. So good. You know, for this pastor in New York City, it was apparently a beautiful woman he met in the park. That was his evil day. For King David, it was seeing Bathsheba bathing naked on a roof. For some, I think it's in the form of a kind of an alpha dog, strong personality friend devoid of godly wisdom that slowly leads them astray. Or for some, it could be an opportunity to make a lot of money. Just kind of sell out. You know, neglect the kingdom of God. It's the the, the moment, the evil day for some, is the moment when Satan comes and whispers in our ear and causes us to doubt God's word. Or it could be sort of an extended season, demonically induced feeling of melancholy that all this Christian stuff is just unreliable. It seems like for many, the evil day is in the form of an adulterous affair. Or pornography that presents itself and puts a person in bondage. Or maybe this one, uh, an injustice or two or three that happens to them that causes their heart to be bitter and resentful. Oh, Satan loves that one. That one works. That one works. No one knows what the evil day will be or when it will come, but listen, it will come. Mark it down. Now, my last thought is this. This is my last point. I'm not scrolling anymore. It's right here. Just kind of getting a little creative and just trying to help us to, to think, think soberly about all this. If the Lord, you know, hypothetically, had an epitaph. You know what an epitaph is, right? It's a one-sentence description of a person's life after their life is over. Usually it's put on a, on a tombstone, right? An epitaph. If, just let's imagine for a minute, there was an epitaph over each person's life. What, what might they sound like? And, and even in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, the, it says all the dead, great and small, will be there, right? And, and then the book's, are opened. Maybe it's you know the name of a person and then 
under, it's like the one sentence description, and then under that, volumes of detail. But what would be written by God about your life if, if it were to be summed up in one sentence? If you were to die today? I mean, here are a few possibilities. He claimed to know me, but did not do the will of God. Had a reputation as a person of faith, but did not obey my word. Went to church, but for all the wrong reasons. Had a profession of faith, but was devoid of the Spirit. Sang beautifully in the choir, but was unrepentant. Identified with Christ, but deceived others to condone sin and to deny orthodox doctrines. Saved, but nominal and stubborn. Pastor of a church, but never willing to totally devote himself fully. And we say, well, come on. The Lord would never say those things. Have you ever read the description of kings in the Old Testament? Such and such a king, you know, did this good thing and did that, seemed to love the Lord, but never dealt with this idol or never tore down the Asherah poles. That was their legacy. That was the epitaph for them. The one-sentence descriptor. Yeah, so-and-so, you know, did some good, but then backslid at the end. Did good, but then didn't get rid of this or didn't get rid of that idol. So my question is, what will be said of us? What trajectory are we on at this point in our life? In other words, if we just continue to do what we always do, what we're doing now, like the way our lifestyle is, the way our the way, the way we walk now, you know, the amount of prayer, the amount of the word, the amount of priority we give to the kingdom of God. Like if we continue to just stay on the path that we're on now, the trajectory, what would be our epitaph in the end? Where does this present lifestyle that we're living, where does it go? Where does it end? What does it look like if we continue on the path? And, and listen, can we just get honest and, and just ask ourselves the question, is that what we're aiming for? If, it, if we're nominal now and stay on this trajectory and it's nominal, it's, a, it's, you know, 70 years of nominal Christian living. Is that what we're going for? My goodness, this is our life. You don't get a second life. This is your run. And maybe you have been nominal or lukewarm. What does Jesus say in Revelation 3 to the lukewarm believers? He says, I counsel you. Two, I forgot exactly, but you know, here's eye salve for your eyes. Here's gold refined in the fire. I'll help you. I'll work with you. I'll change you. I'll transform you. Jesus doesn't want us to stay stuck in anything nominal. Listen, we want to get to the end and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You did the will of God. You finished the race. You fought the good fight. Now, here's your crown. Don't waste your life. You only get one. So let's set our hearts to despise mediocrity and to seek God with all our hearts until our final breath. Amen. The musicians are going to come. I want to ask you guys to stand. We're going to do a little worship, and we're just going to call on the Lord right now and ask him to, to work in us. Jesus, I just cry out for Renaissance Church, this Renaissance family. Lord, I pray that none of us would be swept away. 
I pray that you would make us strong. I pray that you would root us and ground us in you. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would shield us. God, I pray that you would so change our hearts, Lord, that we would not be nominal, that we would not settle for mediocrity, God, that we would be hungry and thirsty for you. Lord, I pray that we would have the same mind that was in the Apostle Paul when he said, you know, I count this world as, as rubbish. I count all things but, but rubbish for the surpassing greatness of, of knowing Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would give us that kind of passion, Lord. I pray that you would break off of us every idle, every sluggish way of thinking, every hindrance, every weight, every sin that so easily entangles. Lord, come with your refiner's fire and burn it away. Purify us, O oh God. Give us courage to cut the cord with sin. Lord, I pray that we would be holy and be righteous as you've called us to be, Lord, that we would not think that it's, it's an option. Lord, I pray that you would put the fear of God in us, that we would tremble at the word, and that we would not make excuses for anything, but we would do the will of God. Lord, I think about the, the many who you warned us about that will come before you on that great day of judgment, and they will say, Lord, Lord, you know, we, we, we were with you. We ate and drank in your presence. We went to church. We did miracles. You know, we, we professed to know your name. And Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. You workers of iniquity. You did not do the will of my Father. Lord, may it not be so for us. Lord, I pray that we would be fastened to the will of God. Lord, that we would be committed, that we would be devoted to prayer and watchful and sober and vigilant and serious-minded about the kingdom of God. Lord, when so many are falling away, God, I pray that you would make this church strong in you. Fill us, God. Protect us. Shield us. Drench us, God, with your Holy Spirit. Keep us sober, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for listening.